Hello, and welcome to PodCash, the portable professional development podcast from Cash. Thanks for joining us. My name's Dawn, and I'm the editor of Cash Alumni. But I'm speaking to um, Linda Aston Pitts. When, when you're ready, if you just want to sort of let everybody know who you are and, and where you're yeah. from and a little bit about you, that would be excellent. Absolutely. So my name is um, Linda Baston Pitt, and I'm now CEO of Purple Bee um, Learning, which is a practice-based online training platform um, that we developed for early years professionals. And one of the, the key parts of it is that it promotes anything and everything around health and well-being, but from leadership mentoring. And then one of the, the major things that we've been developing and that we've just recently launched is the online Panko Award that kind of pulls all of the health and well-being elements together. So that's been a kind of a mission of mine and something we've been working on for about probably about the last 12 to 15 years. And my background is I've worked within early years, uh, I think almost for nearly 30 years. I came into early years uh, from leaving a nursing career and in my nursing career I worked in health promotion so moving into the early years I thought it's kind of a natural step when I had my two young children so I set up and ran my own um, nursery so I was head of a nursery for 25 years 120 place in Cambridge and working with 35 members of staff and we also within the 25 years one of the key things that I recognized was the link between learning and health and well-being but also that you need to start with the health and well-being of the staff before you really can understand how to manage and support the health and well-being of children but also being able to support and help parents and so training was something that we looked at right in the early days in the early days of NVQs but I wasn't desperately happy with how they were developed and delivered so I developed a partnership with um, a local college, Cambridge Regional College, and we became a cash centre quite a long time ago. But one of the major reasons was to be able to not just deliver qualifications, but be also involved in developing the qualifications. So also influencing what needed to be incorporated. So a a gap, and and I can keep on talking, Dawn, so you might have to stop me. So that's that, all right. Um, this, that, this, this is quite a lot to talk about. You've done so much. Um, first of all, I would never have guessed that you were old enough to have been working in any sector for 30 years, let alone um, have multiple careers. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, there, 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 there's loads there. Um, I thought it was really interesting when you said that you couldn't have supported any change in the children's health and well-being until you supported staff to understand a little bit more about health and well-being um is that because without an understanding of that you can't educate others on it or is that more that staff really need to be bought into the whole idea of health and well-being and the impact that it can have i think it my naivety is a very junior manager 25 years ago I assumed coming from the Lake District that everybody liked being outdoors I didn't think anyone was afraid of the rain and I assumed that people ate relatively healthily but when in again very naive you were very wrong (laughs) I thought because I like doing it everyone would naturally follow and do the same as me so you think about being a positive role model 
we can talk about health and well-being, but unless we truly understand what it means to ourselves, it's very difficult to really understand and translate that into into practice within early years. So I, I felt we were doing it well, but I didn't really feel that we'd embedded um, sound um, practice all around, a, a holistic practice around health and well-being throughout our, our nursery at the time. So I, I'm a, a bit of a researcher and an explorer and constantly curious. So I, I'm always talking to um, other people. I'm always trying to find better ways of doing things with and through the staff team. And one of the things we did do, and I thought, you know, there's a lot happening all over the place, but it's very disjointed and we need to kind of pull things together. So I organized um, a health and wellbeing conference. That was about 20 odd, well, 15 years ago, I think. But really to pull all of the people that are involved in health and wellbeing across all of the sectors. So one of my, 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 my passions, and I've been a passionate advocate of health and wellbeing kind of forever, but was how do you bridge the gap between the health element so how do you bring health because we're working with health visitors at the time and education together and although all of the meetings I've gone to and the uh, the conference that we developed was absolutely brilliant one thing that I recognized because I brought dietitians I brought speakers that um, had a key um, strength in certain areas of health and well-being so they were invited but from health and education i think we had about 20 odd people that spoke and had we had workshops everybody had the same objectives but our agendas were quite different so it was very difficult to bring the two together and i thought the only way we're going to ever be able to do this is to develop a qualification that bridges the gap so that some of the health models that I remember using as a nurse, I thought, why aren't we using them in earlier? So things like motivational interviewing skills, they're called. There was a, a huge amount of training uh, that was available, not just to the health sector, but to the early years, but nobody in early years recognized that it was something that they could actually use. So there were lots of techniques and skills that we desperately needed in early years, but it's not, it wasn't coming through training. So the qualification, the PANCO kind of emerged as a way of bridging the gap and bringing it together, health and education. So the models that we could share. And for me- That's Great, and there's, there's actually, there's loads there that I want to sort of pick up on as well. Um, first of all, just because I'm aware that not everybody who's listening will be from an early years background, or if they are, they might not know what a PANCO is. Um, could you explain for anyone listening what a panko is? Well, a, a panko, we wanted to, it was kind of with a small working party that we pulled this together. That was kind of following the, um, the conference that we had. So I made sure that we had somebody that worked in public health, somebody that worked in FE, and then me, who was kind of the, the early years part of it all. And we wanted to develop something that was that made sense to people. So where we've got a Senko in every setting, we decided that a PANCO would be a similar kind of acronym so that people would recognize that as um, not just a qualification, but it's also a role. So the PANCO stands for Physical Activity and Nutrition Coordinator. And the PANCO qualification is a wellbeing in action intervention. And one of the major goals of that is to promote healthy nutrition and physical activity. And our overriding um, vision was 
it was to support the prevention of obesity, which I think we all know is going on to kind of a catastrophic level and it's getting worse. Um, and one of the, the biggest reasons, and that's why going back to kind of 20 years ago, I really did feel that we needed a qualification, the PANCO, that would give early years educators a, a really robust knowledge base about healthy eating and physical activity because the, the training that we've, we've had and got through, it, it's basic and it's great, but it's quite limiting. So we needed to take it onto the next level and the level four was really the next stepping stone. And it's to me, and that's where cash had been absolutely brilliant because it was quite uh, different and innovative, but something that people hadn't recognized before because the training is more than just a qualification and not just about based on a body of knowledge. The PANCOs we saw and kind of the group that developed it initially, it, the PANCOs are agents of, of change. And one of the biggest things are they're actively involved um, in assessing the needs of their own setting. And one of the, the major things there is you need to be able to assess where you are. And a lot of settings have really struggled to, to you know, where, where do you start when it comes to putting a well-being um, strategy or policy together? I don't really know. I mean, a lot of people focus on the food side, but struggle with the physical. A lot of people are focusing on the mental health side, but only in isolation. You know, how do we bring all of those things together? And that's where by using sound um, assessment tools and metrics, it means that PANCOs then can make informed decisions. They can target evidence-based interventions where a lot of settings have tapped into interventions, but they've been quite short-term and not sustainable. So this was about a PANCO helping to improve the health and well-being of everyone. So children, first and foremost, families, but also the staff team. Because as I was just saying to you, you know, unless you support them and they really do understand and they're doing it for the right reasons, that's where things tend to fall apart. Yeah, and, and I do think that um, something that you said there was, was really important was that there was lots of stuff going on in terms of physical health, mental mm. health, you know, nutrition, but they were all in isolation. Um, and actually, those things are all impacted by one another because everything yeah. happens within that one body. Um, is, is that an idea that you think is sort of fairly well known now? Or do you think we're still fighting this idea that all of those things and treating those sort of symptoms? Yeah. Think better at that? Yeah, I think we are getting better at it. And I think because it's become more explicit with the new inspection framework where it's, you know, about well-being of children, but also, you know, you're expected to support the well-being of staff. But how do you evidence that and how do you show that is the slightly difficult thing. And one of the things we've kind of built into the PANCO qualification is that it's, you know, it's not about focusing on single issues, as we've just said. You know, you can't just have a bolt-on approach um, because it doesn't ultimately create conditions for well-being of a whole setting approach and that's something that we really really um, support PANCOs with that they need to build a sustainable approach and think holistically and all of the things we do and look at as a part because we kind of rewrote um, and we keep developing the PANCO qualification with CAT to make sure that it's fit for purpose so for example the things that we look at 
and if you're thinking holistically, would be bringing lots of elements within a setting, as you've just kind of mentioned together. And that's everything from policy, leadership, curriculum, environment, staff welfare, partnerships, and that could be external partnerships. And one of the other biggest elements and things that we've just recently added is the children's own voice. Because I think if you just recognize you can't do well-being to someone. Well-being's very personal to an individual. So unless it means something to that person, simply by flinging in some of the interventions, it might help one person, but it's kind of missed the point with a lot of others. And it might be that it isn't about having donuts for a treat every Friday. It's about I need time off just half a day a week every now and again because I need to catch up on my ironing and things that I'm doing at home because it's all getting too much for me. So, yeah. you know, what, it needs to be meaningful to the individual, but it's yeah. about how you help everyone in the setting to understand what a whole setting approach looks like and equally what part they play. So it doesn't matter whether you're a junior nursery nurse, whether you're a student or whether you're a manager, does everybody understand the importance of what will be put across the whole setting? You know, we, we obviously Cash Alumni works across health and social care, early ed education and education in general in terms of our audience group. Um, and all of those professionals, um, nurses included, and, and early years professionals included, um, yeah generally because their, their their vocation is to care for other people and yep. they're at the bottom of their own list when it becomes when it comes to their own health and well-being um, which is why we see such high levels of burnout um in that sector but you're right it's across all of those sectors and and one of the things i decided to do was um, a master's in positive psychology because that was kind of looking through health and well-being through a different lens and i really needed to develop my own understanding so that I could build on my own experience but that would then I'd then use that and and um, build that into the PANCO qualification because one of the things within health is is quite often quite a negative it's a fix-it approach where yeah. um, you know as you're saying you kind of sort out the symptoms but you never really get to the cause so although you may get better and you might feel good to me it's about and the thing i learned doing my positive psychology it's it's about people flourishing so it's about people really feeling well and doing good and feeling good not happy all of the time but when but building resilience so that when life does get difficult or there are i mean there are always going to be bumps in the road but you have the capacity to be able to overcome them the, the who definition now the world health organization and just to quote, you know, it's a state of complete physical, social and mental well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So it isn't just about a sticking plaster and making somebody feel well. And you've just kind of said it, but there are three domains that enable people to feel well. It's physical, social and mental. And all of those three elements we need to understand, but also look at how that's embedded across a whole organisation so that everyone's involved in it. I think a lot of people who think about early years from outside of the sector um, mm. probably don't understand how, how how full on a career in early years education is, um, whether that is that you're a level two practitioner sort of starting out and um, you know working with children or at any of those sort of higher levels where you're taking on a little bit more of a specialist role or you're, you're managing a certain 
Um, I think there is still very much a misperception um, that early years is a jolly place to be and that there's lots of, you just get to play all day and that it's, you know, really fun. Um, yeah. Which obviously there is a lot of fun to be had in early years and you've got to be the sort of person who does want to roll your sleeves up and get involved and, and, and have a nice time um, with, with children. But there's an awful lot more goes behind it and an awful lot of pressure that people outside of the sector don't necessarily see. Um, no. Do you think that we should be doing more as a sector to sort of support early years practitioners to talk about their own experience and to talk about the negative experiences that they have as part of their role? Mm. And I think I think we need to build that in um, to the framework of every um, setting. And I mean, from for me, the really good news is you know, from my experience of working in the nursery for a long time, but also working with other practitioners, and from my um, master's in positive psychology, is that all of the positive, all of the health and well-being issues, they're all teachable skills. You know, we can um, build our resources, um, and within a setting, if you're looking at children, you know, we can provide opportunities that teach resilience. We know that we can help children to learn and value themselves and to care for others and we can support children to be active and to eat now that's something that lots of settings are doing really well but you know we can also learn from children themselves by asking what they want you know give them the opportunity even very young children to have a clear about, idea about what they enjoy and what makes them happy but to me what's equally as important is that running alongside that the work we do with children Developing a holistic well-being approach also supports staff to develop their own physical, mental, and social well-being. And to me, it's through a strengths-based approach. So you look for the things that are really going well. So if you, for example, if you ask a practitioner to list all of the things they're good at and all of the things they're bad at, I can almost guarantee they'll maybe put two things they're good at, but they'll do ten things that they're not good at. So we sometimes have this negative spiral, which also creates kind of negative emotions so i agree we have to address some of the things that aren't going well but if you're having a staff meeting for example at six o'clock when everyone's absolutely shattered a lot of staff meetings tended to focus on well we need to go through lots of things that you know either i'm not happy about or we need to sort out so they're quite a negative connotation so if you flick that and say i want you to come to the next staff meeting but i want you to write three things that have gone really well this week each person and in the staff meeting or the staff training session at the end of, end of the week whatever it may be you start off with that you everyone feels more positive so you're more able to deal with some of the negative things but we need to focus more on the things we're doing well and build on it and quite often the negative things start to dissipate because yeah, i think a lot of people in the sector have come <laughs> to early years from a place where maybe they've been told that they're not very academic or they haven't done sort of particularly well at school because the way school careers advice used to work is that we used to point academic people or people who did well at school towards university and then we only recruited for early years and care from who was left rather than giving people the option of working in any of those places um, regardless of how academic they were if they had the right skill set to do that. Um, yeah. I am very happy that um, we've changed some of the way that careers advice works in school and things like the GAFSI benchmarks mean that all learners have to be introduced to vocational education as an option. Um, yeah. 
because there are lots of people like me who might have wanted to go into um, something like, you know, social care or, you know, into something that was a vocation, that was something that we cared a lot about, but were actually pointed towards academia just because we got good grades at school. Um, But what that has meant, I think, historically is that a lot of people have come to care or to early years because they're very passionate about it but they haven't necessarily had the support of being told that they're very good at it because education didn't focus on those career paths as a career it was just a job Um, and actually it is a career it's it's a really important career and without that career existing nobody else in the country could go to work Um, so there'd be no infrastructure for the entire UK if we didn't have the support of the amazing early years practitioners who develop children and, and, and bring children on and, and embed them with all of this knowledge, you know, so that life can continue for everybody else as well. Um, it must have been really interesting for you coming to early years with a background as a nurse. Um, uh, it seemed like a natural progression, but I, I again, naively moved into it thinking that, you know, that, the early years was a, a profession that people um, had high regard for. But I've always believed and, and will never change that, you know, we, we know in the evidence, research, everything is there, that the critical time in a child's development is between naught and five. So if we get that right, so I kind of launched into it thinking, um, I, I want to change the world. I want to make it the best it can possibly be. But it has to be with and through the people that I work with. And we need to keep constantly raising the profile, but also raising the professionalism of the sector, which I think without a doubt, it's moved in a very positive direction. I think there's still a long way to go. And obviously with changes of governments, it we kind of almost reach it and then it kind of tails off again. But I think there's so much we're doing ourselves. It's not about waiting for external bodies to tell us and raise the profile it's about us doing it for ourselves and I think this is what I really love about Panko because this was something that came from within the sector it wasn't something that's appeared from the DFE you know we created it because there was a desperate a desperate need and there was a missing link you know there was a missing link in that we needed we've, we've got highly trained earlier teachers we've got highly trained skilled practitioners but we need to build professional development you know but how do you do that and the leap was always from level three to um, graduate leader and you know not every nursery nurse and me running a setting with 35 not every nurse a was suitable for that role but b there was a huge gap in in training so they were coasting at level three you know what can you do to develop the skills of someone even further and that's where the panko fitted in because it was the missing link so that you had someone in a setting that was trained and responsible for, mo- for promoting health and leading it across the setting. But it needed to be at a level four, so it was a natural stepping stone. And that's mm. the exciting part. There's about 3,000 odd pankos out there now doing incredible, incredible things and work that I'm kind of tapping into now and building um, some, they're called Panko Pioneer um, case studies. Because it's all about one of the biggest things, it's about sharing good practice. And that's another thing that's been difficult within the early years. And I've, kind of sat on lots of different working parties at government level and then obviously I went into how we're going to get the message out and I think oh my god you've never even thought about how because it is very difficult and one of the best ways to get 
sound messages because it is very confusing health and well-being but it's through um, high quality training so that everybody has a grounded um, and foundational knowledge about health and well-being that we can build on. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it, you're right in that this provides some really good sort of, it's a really good avenue for CPD um, and allows people to develop into an area of early years if, yeah. if that health and well-being piece is actually something that really interests them. Um, oh. I think one of the things that, that we need more of um, in, in the sector is is more opportunity for people to develop their own skills around the parts of the sector that, that really float their boat. Um, yeah. I disagree. Positive qualification, yeah. Yeah, and I think from, from your experience of coming to the sector, having had a career in a, in a different field, um, and, and obviously that you said that you were a nurse and that you worked in health communication. So you've sort of found your own niche within early years and, and really developed that and, and done a lot of good to, to support the sector. Um, would, would you encourage people from other backgrounds to consider early years as somewhere that they can make a difference and, and, and continue their career? Without a shadow of a doubt. And, and one of the things um, within, within our nursery I mean, we had people applying that worked, you know, they'd worked in retail all their lives or an area, but, they, but they'd come to us later on in life saying, I've always wanted to work with children. Now I'm at a point where my children are older, I can now make a career change. Is it something I can do? Because one of the hardest things is being able to access training at different ages and stages through your life. But because we became our own training centre, it meant that it didn't matter what age the person was that came to us, we were always able to support and develop them. Um, And to me, that adds huge diversity and wealth of experience. And I know within lots of other nurseries and LEAF are working really hard to get men in childcare, but having a balance of practitioners, male, female, and different ethnic minorities, because we've got staff from Portugal, we've got staff from India, from, they bring so much more to your setting. They also have different ways of doing things. So we're able to kind of understand and share and learn so much more from each other that that adds to the um, to the quality of the education that you're delivering to children. Um, so to me, it, it's almost an essential thing. It's not always easy to find those people, but it's about making your, your center, your setting as attractive as possible. Are, are, in your experience, are there things that, that settings can do to support staff to, to to share skills sort of amongst themselves or to develop where it isn't taking a toll on mm. staff being away from the setting um, and embed some things to, to maybe take that load off a little bit and improve the well-being of staff so that they've got a little bit more capacity? Absolutely. And it's about being creative, but it's about understanding what learning means, because learning isn't just about going off on a training course, because we know how hard it is to release someone. And equally, some of the evidence suggests that if you go off on a training course, unless you're able to put it into practice or even talk to somebody about the training you've just done, what that person's learned is lost. And mentoring to me is one of the most important across other sectors and in health. Mentoring is a big, it's kind of used all of the time in teaching mentoring is used a lot of the time so especially nqts that come in but within early years i've noticed that mentoring tends to be used when someone joins the setting and they have their induction but once their induction's finished the mentoring ceases so mentoring for me is one way to embed so a lot of our 
team leaders, trained as uh, qualified mentors. So that also helped with health and well-being because they were the kind of first point of contact. And it was primarily to look at and support um, individuals through the journey. It meant someone was there as a, as a sounding board. And that might be not just about their work issues. Sometimes it might be personal issues that you could talk to your mentor about. But on a one-to-one, it meant that that personalized training and approach, every member of staff was being supported. Another thing that you can do really, really well are supervisions. And supervisions for us became something that were everybody couldn't wait for. And we have supervisions with every member of staff each month. So really, we didn't really have annual appraisals. They weren't really necessary after a period of time. But the one-to-one supervisions we built in health and well-being questions. So lots of appreciative inquiry questioning. What do you think about? How do you think we could change? What do you think we do really well? Stimulated and sparked off lots of pedagogical conversations, but you really started to talk about the work that you were doing. And there was a much deeper understanding about what you were doing and why you were doing it, because a lot of people are doing things on a day-to-day, but if you ask them why they were doing it and what difference is it making, quite often they can't answer it. And that would worry me. So, you know, that's yeah. down to testing to ensure that those pedagogical conversations are constant in everything and anything that you do. So trained staff should be encouraging those so that yeah. you don't... And I think that yeah. you were right when you are talking about um, people talking about their successes or the things that they've done well and not necessarily being able to frame that through a pedagogical lens or... Um, not really fully understanding why it's made such an impact. Um, We found that when we launched um, Cash Alumni as a service, um, that went live a couple of years ago, and the whole reason for that was to to help people to to sort of raise the profile of the sector a little bit and be able to sort of frame some of their their wins um, positively and talk a little bit more about it, but also to give them a few more tools to help them to embed that. So the articles that are on Cash Alumni are... Sort of help them to translate some of that legislation into things that you can put into practice day to day or um Anne Rogers writes a series for us where she talks about um different lovely activities that you can do with children and then links them back to pedagogy and theorists so that people understand why they're doing those things and what they're developing um, and can really um help to talk about that with parents through like learning diaries and, and the things that they're doing to, to communicate what's going on day to day in settings. Um, but one of the things that we really found when we started talking to our members was that if we asked them what they were good at, they would tell us they weren't good at anything. Absolutely. But if we asked them what they enjoyed, they could tell us all of the reasons that they were lucky to work in the settings that they worked in. And yeah. actually, by framing it that way, instead of thinking about what they were good at, they would naturally talk about the things that they were good at within a setting because really we're, we're all set up the same and they're the things that we enjoy or the things that we're good at um so it was things like you know you'd say so so what do you enjoy about your job and they go oh well I'm really lucky because I get to see kids like all the way through that two-year period and I get to do this and I get to do that and we really get to see this happen and it it, it was sort of that that framing device of just Absolutely. asking questions differently like you're saying and it is, it's those, and, and that's kind of a big part of it, positive conversations, which is something, so it's literally, you know, something you can change that stimulates that is how we talk to each other. And that's where we, uh, in one of the, the, I think we brought it into the panko as well, but, you know, 
you can ask one question one way and this is the answer you're, you're likely to get but you can you can flip it into an appreciative inquiry because it's about you want people to be curious and you want people to be excited and you want people to get to the point where as you've just said they can articulate and and explain how they feel about things and what makes them happy and we do it with children but we don't always do it with staff um I think it's something that we can all benefit from being able to actually review our achievements. Um, yeah, we're all very focused on what went wrong, but we never really take time to reflect on what went well. As you're saying, it's the kind of the taking time to reflect, but it's also building it into the culture of your organisation. It's funny you're saying that because my one of my um, colleagues who did um, the masters with me, she's doing a PhD in imposter syndrome, so I've done a bit of work with her, but I. I I hadn't realised how so many people suffer from imposter syndrome, but for all of the reasons you've just said, but you almost kind of kick yourself and why am I here? Why is anybody even listening to me? Why is this important? And you sort of constantly, you can get into a spiral of just constantly um, asking yourself those questions instead of, as you're yeah, saying... Yeah, you worry about getting found out. Someone's going to realise that I'm not really as good as they think I am and it's, it's all going to fall and apart. I'm going to be found out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's but it's amazing. But it, one of the first things is to actually recognise it. It's like that with anything, and then start to put things into practice. But these are things with very young members of staff we started to do, and where they'd be quite sceptical, they do it. It's just become the norm now. So it's like you're yeah. saying, one of the three um, three things that you're grateful for that you you bring to a staff meeting. You know, I, I don't need to ask people to do that anymore. And they've changed it a little bit and developed into slightly different things. But it's something that's a part of our practice. And it, it and, and when we're talking about embedding initiatives, that they're the things I'm talking about, but they need to be things that come from within the organization rather than I've seen this, we're gonna do it. I want all of you to do it. And everyone's saying, but why? I don't really understand the purpose. But it needs to, that's the big thing for me, it needs to come within. And that's where, the, the, to me, the Panko role really supports that because they're there to evaluate, they're there to kind of assess areas of well-being, not just children, but also um, of staff. But the other thing is about supporting training and, and CPD is about connecting and sharing with other professionals across not just the sector, but beyond the sector, but finding mechanisms to do that. Because one of the things, especially coming from a health background, you know, we also had um, nurse students coming to our setting because there weren't enough paediatric places within a hospital. You know, so the, there were other opportunities that staff could see that, that eventually they could move on and be a paediatric nursery nurse. So for me, I wanted to always show people that we work with, that there were so many other opportunities, a bit like you're saying, you come into early years and well, what's, what does that mean? Is that all you can become is a manager? Well, there's so much more. And that's the great thing about um, Cash have mapped out uh, to show the different avenues and routes that you can move into. I know there's lots of quotes of Charita Einstein that you didn't actually say. Um, but my favourite Einstein quote ever is, is that one about um, judging a fish. Um, and it said um, that Everyone's a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it'll live its whole life believing that it's stupid. Um, and I think that's really pertinent in terms of talking about um, people who want to progress and who, who want to do more. 
um, but don't necessarily feel that they can um, because everyone can find the thing that they're most interested in and, and develop in that area if, if they know how to find the direction that they need to travel in. Absolutely, and the more we tap into our own strengths and the strengths of others, you, you do, without a doubt, move on to another plane of, of building your confidence, your ability to try other things, and, and whether it's move, carrying on within the sector or attempting something like a panko, but, but recognizing that you've got so much more to give and do and you want people to, I reckon, unless we feel challenged, you know, it, it, we start questioning what's, what's the point in it all. And I've noticed with so many staff and people that I've worked with, you can see people that are so excited to learn and do more. And because they are challenged, the more excited and enthused they are about the work. This is all amazing. And, and I could talk to you absolutely all day, um, but I'm very conscious that I've already kept you for an hour and a half. If people want to find out more about the role of a PANCO or how PANCO came to exist, obviously they can find out about where they can do qualifications and about the qualification of a PANCO on the CASH website and by searching for PANCO. Um, but in terms of that, that wider knowledge of um, the services that sort of you've got and the, 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 just the PANCO in general, where can people find that online? Yeah, well, you can go to, we've got um, a Panko resource page and and that's kind of all free information and advice and support. The other thing we have are three free um, Panko videos that kind of explains everything from um, what does it, what is a Panko, what do they do, what the kind of the bigger goal of Panko is, because my ultimate goal is to have a Panko in every setting, just as you would have a Senko and it will have regional conferences across the country so that's the long-term vision which is starting to happen <laughs> uh, but equally it's kind of what does a panko look in practice so there's three videos kind of in it summarize everything that i've talked about so it really gives people a, a good idea of what it's all about and they're free and yes yeah, it's, it's been great to talk to you thank you so so much for your time and for talking to us. It's been really lovely. Don't forget, if you've got some best practice or you'd like to share with us um, something great, um, you can get in touch with us at alumni at cash.org.uk. That's alumni, A-L-U-M-N-I, at cash, C-A-C-H-E for echo, dot org dot uk. And we'd love to speak to you. You can find us at the Cash Alumni website at www.cashalumni.org.uk or through the main Cash website for information about qualifications and other CPD at www.cache.org.uk. Thanks very much and until next time, take care.